So if you are a, uh, a baseball fan at all, you'll know this story. If not, I hope you can kind of pick it up and, and catch it. So the Cubs, Chicago Cubs, everybody knows, is the worst team in baseball historically, right? They're awful. And it's not their fault. They've got this thing called the curse of the billy goat hanging over them for years and years, decades. So we won't go there. But leave it to say, the, the Cubs, up until a couple years ago, had not won a World Series since 1908. And they hadn't been to one since 1945. So they're pretty bad. They're in bad straits as a team. And they kind of take pride in that. It's part of the ethos of being a Cubs fan. We play in this really old Wrigley Field, and we stink. That's what it means to be a fan of the Cubs. But they want to get better, obviously. And so in 2003, this major moment in Cubs history happened when they had made it finally to the National League playoff. And they were playing the Marlins team in Florida. And if they won that, uh, that series, it's a best-of-seven series, they would go to the World Series. Well, they were up 3-2 to two on the Marlins in the series. So they only had to win one more game. They're playing at Wrigley. They've, uh, it's the eighth inning. They're up three to zero. So they're only five outs away. There's one out. There's only five outs away from going to the World Series. It's huge, big time. Marlins are at bat. One out, one man on. Uh, the batter uh, pops the ball up. It's going out of bounds, going, um, uh, you know, just a little bit out of bounds, but, uh, but kind of in the stands. And so uh, the, uh, the outfielder runs, looks like it's going to be a pretty routine snag. He's going to catch the ball, and the batter will be out. But as he leans just a little bit into the fans, one of the fans on the front row who's watching the ball the whole time doesn't see the player coming, and he reaches up at the same time, deflects the ball. The outfielder misses it, doesn't get, a, doesn't get the batter out. That batter goes on to walk to first base. The next batter gets a double. And they go on, the Marlins go on to score eight runs that inning and win the game, tie the series three to three. The next game they win and knock the Cubs out. Marlins go to the World Series. What happened immediately following that was that this guy, Steve Bartman, becomes absolute pariah to Cubs nation. They hate this guy. So immediately following, like the, the, the outfielder yells at him, like right in his face, yells at this fan. And then, as the game keeps unfolding, the hatred keeps building. Because this was seen as like the first domino that just that kept the Cubs out of the World Series. And so, so not long after that, this guy, Steve Bartman, has to be escorted out of the stadium while people throw stuff at him. You know, drinks and, and, and trash and everything. He gets out of the stadium. He goes home. Almost immediately, somebody posts his name and his address online. He's getting death threats. The guy was getting legitimate death threats for a long time. And the hard thing was it kept building, right, over a number of days because the Cubs lost the game and then as they lost the next one. And then, uh, you know, and and it becomes bigger and bigger. So the story keeps growing. And it was an absolute mob scene. So here's this guy, huge Cubs fan, all his life, loves the Cubbies, puts up big money to come to the National League playoff game. And now he's completely on the outside, completely put out. He can never go back to Wrigley, ever, ever, ever. And he almost, he has, uh, you know, he can barely show his face around town. I talked to uh, Emily Brown, grabbed me after the last service. She and Chapman used to live in Chicago, and they were there during this time, and Chapman Brown was at that game. They're members of our congregation. And he said it was like a mob scene. And they said all of Chicago absolutely despised this guy. He never spoke 
on, uh, he never gave interviews. He was offered all these endorsement deals and stuff. He said no to everything. And he had to completely pull himself out of the public eye. Uh, there, I heard that he actually moved. The story I read didn't say that. But he actually moved to Florida where he'd be a hero instead of a goat <laughs> in Chicago. So this guy gets completely, utterly ostracized. All the way out, nobody wants to be around him, nobody likes him, changes his numbers, has to move. And I think that, because, that, that helps us get into the mindset a little bit of the paraplegic in our story today, who's completely, utterly outside. He's so far outside of, um, of, of his broader family, and maybe his immediate family. So Jesus, we're told in this, you know, uh, in this passage, is heading back to Jerusalem. If you remember, we talked about uh, the Holy Land being shaped about like this. It's just a rectangle, right? That's a real rough. But Jesus moves, uh, you know, in the south, in the north, he does the wedding in Cana, turns the water into wine. That's the first thing. Goes south for the Passover, meets with Nicodemus. You remember that? Goes north, meets with the woman at the well. In Samaria, as he passes through there to search her out, goes back up to to Galilee, heals an official son. We didn't do that story. But now he's going back south, back to Jerusalem, to to another major festival. Uh, A Jewish man was expected to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times in a year for for the three major festivals. We're not told which one it is, but he's heading back. He's in Jerusalem. That's where Jesus is at this point. So... He is um, heading back. I do want to say that Jesus' actions in this occur on the Sabbath. And actually, this story kicks off this whole chunk of the book of John about Jesus' deity, especially in regards to his actions on the Sabbath. Uh, we're not going to focus on his sa- the Sabbath part of this uh, today. But uh, it just seems, it seems clear. We don't really know exactly, but it seems clear Jesus had a big problem with Sabbath practice at the time. But we're going to focus more on the interaction with this man. So, Jesus arrives in the holy city on a holy festival, and he's come all the way from Galilee to be there. So where's the first place he goes in this holy city for a holy festival? Not the temple. Right? You would expect Jesus to go to the temple, to where people are gathering, to where things are happening. But he goes to this place called the Pool of Bethesda. He goes to the place where all the messed up people are hanging out. It's, it's a, a writhing sea of broken humanity at this pool. That's where Jesus goes. We see him going out of his way again, or at least making his way directly to someone who's outcast, just like the woman at the well. He pursues this man. He pursues this guy. And he looks at him, and as he speaks to him, the man says, Sir, I have no one. I have no one. This man is Steve Bartman. He's completely outside, completely alone, ostracized from his people. In this passage, he's called an invalid, which I predict will be one of the next words to drop out of English usage. Uh, That's a pretty rough word, right? He's invalid. He's invalid. His life is not valid. it's a pretty rough way to describe somebody. But that's, that's who this guy is. 38 years. 38 years of lying on this mat, waiting for the pool to stir. Now, 
this is Matt. We should get a picture of this guy's life a little bit. When, uh, a number of years ago, uh, my family and I drove down to Nashville. We used to live, when we lived in Philadelphia, and we drove to Nashville, and uh, my brother was there. He didn't have any kids at the time, and I remember um, picking him up to go hiking or something like this, and he gets into the car, and he goes, expletive, Corby. Oh, my gosh, this car <laughs> smells so bad. It's awful. And you know those cars. All of us probably either grew up in one or drive one right now. You know the car that you live in because you're going from one thing to another and you eat half your meals. Here, here, eat this quick breakfast bar while we drive. No, you can have a bowl of cereal. Just take it in the car. And, you, and like you spill it and it's got like those crusty old Cheerios down in the buckle where you can't get them anymore. And then it, and it just smells terrible. You left the windows one time open when it rained and it, the smell never goes away, especially when the sun comes out. It just smells awful. And it's this nasty, nasty car because it's lived in all the time. That's like your, that is your home during the day, except you never clean it. I don't, I don't do it either. Okay, this guy's mat was his home. That's where he lived. He said, I don't even have anybody to take me into the pool when it's stirred up. Do you think somebody hung around and took him to the bathroom? And a man in this position with these disabilities likely has no control over those parts of his body either. This man had been laying there for 38 years. It is no wonder no one wanted to be around him. It is no wonder at all. Deuteronomy 20, so, uh, excuse me, Leviticus 20 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, For the generations to come, none of your descendants who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed, no man with a crippled foot or hand. So not only do people not want to be around this guy, he was not allowed to be around his people. He wasn't allowed to come and offer and make sacrifices. He was, he was outside. He was completely apart. And so when he says, Sir, I have no one or literally no human to help me. It's accurate. But here's part of his problem. The man is looking for wholeness. He's looking for healing in this really shoddy place. This place is the Pool of Bethesda. We know from archaeological excavations and other historical documents that this place was, was a holy place of a sort. Um, held to be kind of sacred, special uh, by Jews, but also by, by just kind of typical pagans. At one time, this area, this pool was dedicated uh, to a pagan god of healing. And so he's hanging out in this place at this pool, which is his last hope. And it is just an absolutely shoddy hope. It's superstitious, right? It's this place where an angel is supposed to come down and stir up. Obviously, it didn't do all that well. He's been there for 38 years. It's a really ineffective place to spend your life if you're looking for healing. The man has given his life to superstition. Now, before we get all uppity, as modern Westerners and people believing in superstitious stuff like this, let's not forget that not too long ago, and, and Western medicine, 
The, the prevailing belief of the time was to bleed people, to make them whole. Oh, I've got an idea. Let's take your blood out of you. That is awesome. Good call. Do you all remember that Saturday Night Live skit with Jim Belushi where he was the medieval doctor? Somebody's got to remember this one. It's so good. People come in one after another. Oh, sir, my, my daughter has this terrible fever and she won't wake up. Bleed her, two quarts. Oh, and they go and hook her up. She's like bleeding out in a bowl. And then, oh, well, my friend, he got run over by a wagon and a team of horses and his legs are disfigured and he's got him in a wheelbarrow and Tim Belushi bleed him three quarts. But I'm already bleeding, sir. And then, you know, like later in the skit, the, the, the mom who comes in at first, oh, my, my daughter, she died. Oh, yeah, she was sick. You know, there's, it, was, it was the prevailing wisdom of the time to let people's life force out of them in order to heal them. And that lasted for a long time. We are not above this. Someday people are going to look back on our medical practices and think they're ridiculous. Not so much yours, Lee. Yours are fine. They're good. But other people's. <laughs> Bleed them. Are you kidding me? So this guy gives his life to this superstition of being healed. Gives his life. And all he had to do was give everything, absolutely everything, to be there. And Jesus asks this desperate and lonely man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? You and I sit at those same types of waters, those same powerless places of healing, those same superstitions. You and I give our entire lives to find healing. And something that's not delivering. So I think we can ask ourselves, what's, what's my pool and what's my mat? What's my pool and what's my mat? Where, where am I looking for healing and where in my life is that showing up? Where is that mess coming, uh, coming clear? So what's your pool? Maybe it's getting the right relationship. Maybe if you had that romantic relationship or that person that you always wanted who understood you and affirmed you and, and knew you. And maybe you're giving your whole life to that. And that's, what's gonna, well, that's where you're going to find healing. Maybe it's so you can get your kids into college so they can go and get the right job. My kids' success is the pool of healing that I'm giving my life to. Or getting the right education so you can get the right career. Or advancement in a career so you can have power and wealth and security. What's your pool that you are laying beside, that you are giving your entire life to? What's your map? Where's the place in your life where things are getting filthy? Maybe it is your car. Maybe you're so devoted to driving your kids back and forth and here and there and you're eating junk in the car and it's getting smeared everywhere. And if your car is that filthy, that might be a tip-off. You're spending too much time in it. Maybe your car is your mat. It's the place where God's knocking and saying, get up, wake up. Maybe your marriage is your, is your mat because you're giving so much to your work. And it's in shambles. Maybe your finances are. 
Have you taken out ridiculous loans you can never pay back because you think you can get an education that will get you wholeness and get you exactly what you want? Maybe you're taking out loans or racking up debt just to stay up in the game, to get the comforts you think you deserve. Maybe your friendships are requiring this of you and your family is in shambles because you're running around keeping up with your friends, trying to, be, trying to maintain the popularity and the social position, and you're completely neglecting your family at home. What's your map? What pool are you lying beside? What pool are you giving your life to, to be whole and healed? How would you answer if Jesus asked you, do you want to be healed? I love the irony that this pool is called Bethesda, and Jesus meets this man at a pool called the House of Grace. He meets him at a pool called the House of Grace. And this this man is healed not by an angel coming down, but by the very Son of God coming down and taking action on his behalf. This Son of God took on flesh, and, and he healed Not by the man's commitment to be there, to be present, to stay no matter what it costs, but by Jesus' commitment to bring life and wholeness to this world that he loves. And one day, Jesus would give um, not just a life of waiting, but his entire life on the cross to bring forgiveness and wholeness to his people. Jesus is a legitimate version of what Bethesda was supposed to be. He just upstaged Bethesda. You know what it cost this guy? This guy had just given, had 38 years been lying there, given his life to this false hope, to this superstition. Jesus enters the scene. Do you know what it cost the guy to get, what, to get the healing he'd always been looking for from Jesus? This is an easy one. Nothing. Nothing at all. This is great. When people ask him later who healed him, what does he say? I don't know. He's got no idea who Jesus is, but Jesus acts on him and and brings healing to this guy's life. He doesn't fit any of our requirements in the PCA. He couldn't even take communion here because he doesn't know who Jesus is. He's got terrible theology. His theology is this. If you think for a minute that you can stop Jesus from working on you, you're dead wrong. Jesus requires nothing to begin operating on you, to give to you, to draw you to to himself. In fact, if you're here, if you've heard God's word, if you know who he is, he's already operational. He's already on the move. He requires nothing. I love that. In our house, we like this show called Miracle-Less. In one episode, a man gives his daughter a, a special heirloom watch. She's in high school. Do you think this was a good idea? No. He gives her this heirloom, and she takes it out and immediately brings it to a rollerblading race, as the kids are doing these days. And it gets destroyed. 
That father was reckless with his goods, and Jesus, likewise, is absolutely reckless in his generosity. Who did he just give this to? Jesus has, as in bodily form, walking the earth, a limited number of people he can do this for, and he chooses this guy? This guy? Who doesn't know who he is? We're told about the, the uh, Nicodemus eventually comes around, if you read the whole book of John. He's a powerful leader. That's a good choice right there. The woman at the well goes and brings the entire village with her. The guy right before this, the official whose son he's healed, his whole family comes into in belief in Christ. But this guy is outcast. Nobody would listen to him if he spoke anyways. This is a terrible investment. But Jesus is recklessly generous. He doesn't require anything. And just in case, just in case we thought it ended here, just in case we think Jesus, we're tempted to think that Jesus can do a few good things because he was on the earth at one time. He says this to the man. In our, in, uh, in our translation, he says, uh, get up, take your mat, and walk. Uh, that word, get up, is the same word the New Testament often uses for resurrect. Be resurrected. Take up your mat and walk. And Jesus is foreshadowing. He's using this word to foreshadow what's going to happen with him, that he is going to be resurrected and his power doesn't come from taking one power in this world and playing it off against another one, like we take medication to to combat sicknesses. That's one power in this world combating another power in this world. Jesus' power comes from outside the world, from outside of creation. It's resurrection power and it's limitless and it's it's boundless and it, it, it doesn't have any requirements on you. That's the kind of power that he brings to this man who doesn't deserve it in my mind, in our minds. And that's the kind of power he is operating on you with today. But it's not all easy and happiness and rainbows and unicorns right after this. There's a cost. There's a cost to being whole. So this man, I love this, the the man... um, you may be interested to know is like um, is like Steve Bartman. So Steve Bartman, outcast from the Cubs. But in 2016, the Cubbies win the World Series. They go all the way. They win it. They break the curse of the Billy Goat, which we're all relieved to know. And, uh, and the organization of the Cubs, they had tried earlier times, but they reach out to Steve Bartman, this organization that had had, uh, had been hurt and had, you know, at great cost to themselves, uh, endured the injury of Steve Bartman, foisted upon them in his interference. They offered to wipe the slate clean, and they said, we'd like to give you a World Series ring, an official World Series ring. We'll just put this whole thing behind you. So they offer it to Steve Bartman. He does take it. Where should he go first? Where should Steve Bartman go immediately after receiving this ring? To Wrigley Field. Right? The place where the family gathers. He's in the inside now. He was outside and now he's been brought in. And he he should go where they hang out. He should go where the family goes. And that's what this this crippled man does. He gets healed. And he goes right to the temple. But the Jews stop him along the way. I love this. And they say, um, uh, the Jews stop him. uh, And they say, hey, you can't carry that mat. It's the Sabbath. And the guy says, uh, the guy who healed me. He, he told me to carry it. Um, and I love that they asked this. First of all, I love it. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. That's crazy. 
Um, but they say, the obvious question is, oh, you just got healed. And then the guy gave you a command. The obvious question is, who healed you? Who did this miraculous thing, and now you're not sitting in this nasty mat waiting by the pool anymore? Who did that? That's the obvious question, but they ask instead, who commanded you? Who told you about that rule? Who broke those rules? We don't have time to get into that, but Lord, preserve me from being a man like that. Not who healed you, but who commanded you? So Jesus then again sought him out once at the pool of brokenness, the pool of Bethesda, so he seeks him out again. Jesus comes and finds this man in the temple. And he gives him a word that, uh, that doesn't seem all that happy to me. He says, look, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. That's kind of tough, right? But let's just acknowledge, Jesus thinks that something worse could happen to this guy, worse than lying by a pool for 38 years with no use of his limbs. Jesus thinks something worse could happen to this guy. He's warning him about the the consequences of his sin, both now and eternally. It's a kind warning, but I love what comes first. Look, you are healed. The grace comes first. The free gift comes first, and then the command. The gift comes first, like it does for all of us. The gift comes first. Our passage ends darkly. So like current postmodern movie makers would love this one because it ends ambiguously and in darkness. Uh, Or maybe short storytellers. I don't get short stories, but they always end this way. So he leaves and then he goes and tells the Jews, oh, it was Jesus, by the way. That's so rough. Here's this guy who was an outsider all his life, and finally he gets healed, and now he can go to the temple. He can go and be on the inside. He can go be accepted. He can be part of the crew. He can be part of the family again, finally. But almost immediately he's threatened by the authorities to get kicked out again. You just broke the Sabbath. You just broke one of our crucial laws. So he'd rather reject Jesus than face rejection. He's so afraid of what these people can do to him that he sells out Jesus. I think that's a fine question to end on. What, what are you so afraid of that, that you would sell out Jesus? Um, where is he, where is the line for you? That line is going to be in exact keeping with the depth of your rescue, right? The depth that you acknowledge, how, how deep, how lowly, how alone, how broken you acknowledge yourself to be is going to set the bar for how far you're willing to go after Jesus has, whole, uh, Jesus has forgiven and made you whole. Where's the line for you? Where's the line of the cost of following Jesus? Will you follow him even though it's going to cost rejection, even though resurrection is going to be a costly thing in your life? 
I hope you will. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.